Russia's imperialist war against Ukraine continues. China considers lessons that might apply to its intended conquest of Taiwan. North Korea may be preparing a nuclear weapons test. And negotiations for a new and worse iteration of President Obama's fatally flawed Iran nuclear deal are on life support. Meanwhile, inside Israel, there's been a new wave of terrorist attacks. All this as we reach the one-year mark since the Gaza conflict of 2021. I don't know of two better experts to discuss these and related issues than my colleagues, Jonathan Shanzer, FDD's Senior Vice President for Research, who literally wrote the book on last year's conflict, and Brigadier General Yaakov Nagel, Senior Fellow at FDD and former Acting Israeli National Security Advisor to Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu. He also contributed to the Hebrew edition of John's book. I'm Cliff May, and I'm glad to have John fill in for me today. I'm glad you're with us, too, here on Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the We game. are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence, that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. You could see mass destruction within Israel as a result of this precision project that Iran has undertaken. Jacob, welcome back to Foreign Policy. Welcome back to Washington, D.C. Welcome back to FDD. We're pleased to have you here today. We want to talk about a number of topics, uh, all relating to the Middle East, all relating in some way to Israel. And of course, you are the former national security advisor to the former prime minister. You're very plugged in to many of these issues. So let me start with our first topic today. Let's talk about what's happening on the Temple Mount. How has Israel responded well? How has it not responded well? How would you describe Israel's response right now? And how do we get out of this? Okay, first of all, you said it's all related. You are totally correct. But also all related to Iran. Iran is not behind everything, but is behind most of the bad things that are happening in our region. Now, there is one point in the Middle East that can be flammable, so it will affect the whole region and sometimes maybe the whole world. And this is Temple Mount Al-Aqsa, the old Israeli temple. And it's because in a very, very dense neighborhood, some of the most important artifacts to the Muslims, Jewish and Christians are in the same area. When it comes to religious, everyone becomes, everyone becomes not logic. There is one month in a year, Sometimes this month of Ramadan comes together with Israeli holidays and sometimes with Christian holidays, like this year, all three together. And in Temple Mount, it's better to be smart and not always to be correct or right. And it's not that we are giving up something. It's coming out of strength. It's not coming out of weakness. It's not a different if you are from the right or from the left. Sometimes you are talking to your people, not the world. And it's also very important to see the reaction of the Israeli Arabs, it's something that we have to take care of. So interesting. I, I, a lot of good points. I want to unpack a couple of things. First, I, I'll just make a comment that I, I don't know how it has become this, but Ramadan you know, is supposed to be a month-long holiday of introspection, 
of uh, self-examination, of time with family. It is a shame as I look at the way that Ramadan has been exploited by extremists on the Palestinian side, but also I think in other places around the Arab world. I remember you know, Ramadan uh, during the Iraq war uh, was a tense time for American soldiers. I don't know how this has become an excuse for bad behavior, but it is something that obviously Israel is wrestling with. But the thing that strikes me right now is, you know, during the last war, which you and I wrote about in uh, in, in the book that came out in Hebrew uh, just a few months ago, we talk about this, um, the potential uh, headquarters or nerve center out of Beirut, which is a shared nerve center, according to reports, between Hezbollah, Hamas, and Iran, and they are trying to stoke unrest. They're trying to make things like this happen inside Israel. Do you believe, from what you've seen from the Israeli press, from Israeli reporting, do you believe that Iran is actually behind this as well? Everything that is happening in the Middle East, Iran has something to do with. Now, when we're talking about Hezbollah, you are right about this nerve center. When we're talking about Hezbollah and the Northern Command and weaponization of Hezbollah, it's 100% Iran. Even so, I'm not sure what will be Hezbollah's reaction when there will be a clash between Israel and Iran. Hezbollah understands now what is going to happen to Lebanon. There is no one single flame or match that can flame everything. It can happen, but even in the clash a year ago, there was not one point that makes the war start. In this case, I don't think that Iran was involved now, but for sure they are involved behind the scenes because just look around. We have a crazy agreement maybe negotiated between the United States and Iran. No one is talking about this agreement for the last two, three weeks. Everyone is talking about Jerusalem, Gaza, other places. For the Iranians, it's good that this tension is there. So generally, yes, it's Iran, Hezbollah and Hamas. It's good for them that the tension will go from Gaza and, of course, from Tehran to Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem, it's going back to religious. And when you go to religious, as I said, you are not thinking rational. You are thinking with emotions and not with your brain. Still, I think that Iran have something behind the scenes. And yes, they are building those kind of weapons and in order to use them when they will need it. Yeah, I think that's 100% something to watch. It was interesting because on a recent uh, uh, trip to Israel, you and I took part in a conversation uh, with some officials from the Shin Bet, from the Internal Security Services. Without getting into a whole lot of detail, they knew that this was coming. And but not fact, in this uh, no, not, not Nothing magnitude. specific and, and not this magnitude, but they had an idea of what would come from Ramadan. And part of it is, I think, the predictability now of extremists that are trying to exploit the holiday. And part of it may have to do with perhaps things that they're seeing uh, from some of the, let's just say, some of the actors that they watch. Let me, um, while we're on Jerusalem, I want to turn to the question of Jordan. You mentioned Jordan already. Jordan has been making some very unrealistic demands. Now, as we know, Jordan has agency in the old city. They have, uh, they take part in, um, in, in governing the Temple Mount. They have a voice within the waqf, within the religious authority that governs uh, uh, Muslim holy sites in Jerusalem. This dates back, of course, to when Jordan was the, uh, the government in control 
of Jerusalem from 1948 until 1967. So they have this historical role. They also have a peace agreement with Israel. And it's, of course, not a warm peace. It's been a very cool peace. But quietly behind the scenes, we know that Jordan and Israel have a very valued relationship, that Israel keeps Jordan safe through intelligence, through cooperation, through other kinds of um, sharing of information that has helped keep the kingdom uh, calm for many years. And then for a while, we saw tension, real tension between the two leaders, between uh, King Abdullah and your old boss, Benjamin Netanyahu. We all heard that this was going to get a lot better after Bibi left, when Bennett was elected. And yet here we are again, looking at the same very um, sharp rhetoric coming out of Amman. So how do we explain what's going on here? Is this only for domestic consumption, what Jordan is saying, or is there something else going on here? You are totally correct, mostly internal. Jordan is not in a great situation or state, and they have a lot of internal problems. And of course, the de deteriorating economy, no water, and the teachers are threatening to strike. So there are a lot of internal reasons. Now, I am surprised that some people are surprised from the rhetoric. The new prime minister of uh, Jordan is not talking alone. He's a messenger of something to tell his people, look, we are the protecting authority of our most sacred places. Now, I didn't mention it before, but one thing that I am concerned about is what is going on inside Israel, in the mixed cities or in the Arab cities like Taibe and like Umm al-Fakhem, other places. The majority of people there, they're really afraid of what Lieberman once said, okay, let's send them back to the Palestinian Authority and do some exchange of territory. It's not going to happen. Their living standards are 10 times better than in the Palestinian Authorities and one other times better than in Gaza. Some of the members of Knesset, they are teachers, doctors, business people. It's not Bibi or Bennett or Lapid or Gantz. Everyone have his own interests, everyone his own reasons. And when Bennett and Abdullah or Bibi and the king were sitting together in one room, they were talking how to do best for their countries. When they go to the, to the press, to the TV, sometimes they are not talking to the other side. They are talking to their voters. Understood. I want to just ask you very briefly about this. We see a change in the rhetoric coming out of Turkey. And the rhetoric, if we recall from last year during the war of May, of 2021, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan was probably the most vicious critic of Israel and the most ardent supporter of Hamas as Hamas was firing rockets into Israel, 4,000 or more. Today, it's a very different Turkey. You have a president now who says that he wants better relations with Israel. He's condemned Hamas for some of its recent attacks. He is calling for calm. He's not screaming at Israel the way that he used to. So there's a question of, I mean, maybe two things. One is, has this leopard changed his spots? Is he really all of a sudden going to be a friend for Israel? But then I think more importantly, what can we expect between Israel and Turkey five years from now? Let's say Erdogan's gone. Do you think that Israel and Turkey can go back to the kind of relationship that it had in the 1990s when things were 
pretty good. When we go back to Turkey, you know that, again, I don't want to say I'm proud or not proud. It was the job that I got from prime minister. I was, the, I think, the third force in NSA working on this issue of reconciliation between Israel and Turkey after the Marmara, together with Chekhanover. We just got it as a special mission from, from Netanyahu. And we signed on this agreement 2016. At the end, Rajib Tayyip Erdogan did not become a great Zionist, and he won't be. And I'm not expecting him to be. Like, I'm not going to be part of the Ottoman Empire again. But the difference is, is that Erdogan supports Hamas. Erdogan supports the, ISIS. Right? So this, this is I'm coming now. So he is not a Zionist. So what he changed now is that his interest, finally, he is working the way we are teaching in universities. You are supposed to work according to your country interests, not ego and not other things. So the Turkish interests now are to work together with Israel on some issues, mostly economic. And of course, like Israel is the bridge to the United States. So Erdogan wants us, Israelis, to give him a bridge. When we signed the reconciliation, the same was that we needed some, I call it, backup for the gas if it won't work with other places. Now we have Cyprus, Greece, Italy, but it's good that we have also Egypt and Turkey. So he have his own economical interests. We have our economical interests. You just see what you said. Erdogan just stopped Hamas people from going into Turkey just in the last few weeks. So we have to take his interests when they are corresponding ours to use them. And this is the situation. Don't expect Erdogan to come to Israel waving the Israeli flag and going to put a note in the Kotel. It won't happen. It, it didn't change his ideology. It changed his behavior. I think that's right. And I think at some point we'll maybe we'll see with a change in leadership, maybe we can see some more warming of ties in so. return. I hope Look, so too. I, I was the responsible from the R&D point of view on Israel-Turkey relations. I've been in Turkey in 2003-2004 as the head of military R&D and then deputy director of DDR&D in Israel, like the Israeli DARPA. I've been seven, eight times. Now, we were in the middle of talking to other areas on very sensitive issues with Turkey. And then they changed. They moved from the military part ruling the country to the religious part ruling the country. And it's really ruined the Turkish economy. Now, I don't know if you know, but still Turkey, it's the biggest European commercial relations with Israel is with Turkey. Even in the worst times, Israelis like to go to Turkey. We both smell the same salt from the Mediterranean. Erdogan will never be Israel lover, but he understands the relations. Is it going to be the same as it was in 2004? I think no, maybe in 50 years. You know, it's funny. I heard um, I heard from someone in Israel said that right now the best you can probably hope for is a cold peace sort of like what existed between Israel and Egypt in the 1990s or 2000s. You know, and then maybe with a new leader, right? When CC came in, it changed the the tone of the relationship. So really, leadership does matter. The people, the personalities, they really have a, a huge influence. And Erdogan, I think, has done a lot of damage. But let me actually ask you, as I think about Turkey, Turkey, when we talk about Turkey's interests, part of what's changing Turkey's perspective or Erdogan's perspective is he's looking at an aggressive Vladimir Putin, who's a neighbor. Right? And he's looking at what's happening. I asked myself, when you're going to come to Putin? Yeah. Well, this is the right time, right? Because okay. Turkey, Turkey's looking now and they say, okay, this is an aggressive Putin. Turkey's still a member of NATO. I don't know how it's still an, a member of NATO, but it is. And it's looking around and it says, wait a minute, we need the help of Europe. We need the help of the United States. We need the help of NATO because we don't know what Putin is going to do next. So I think that also may explain some of what is driving Erdogan. 
But there's an interesting thing that I, I, I think it leads me to ask you, which is Israel's perspective on Putin. When we were there together, you and I were in Israel in February. I was there right at the beginning of the war. And we were talking to officials and they were doing their best to not anger Putin, but also to make sure that it was clear that they were on the side of the United States. It was a, a balancing act, whereas the Israelis say you're walking between the raindrops. <laughs> How is that going? Look, it's, it's like we try to tell him, Putin, that what we demand from him in Syria, about Iran, about other, is not because of Israeli interests. It's because of Russian interests. Because Putin went to Syria not because he is a fan of Assad. It's because he saw the future of economic ties that he maybe can get from Syria and he's not getting it. And we told him, while the Iranians are there, you're not going to get it because Israel will not allow, remember the three red lines of Israel in Syria, we are not going to allow the game changer weapons, the PGMs. Putin understood it. Still, he decides sometimes to do what he needs. Also, rhetoric of Putin now against Israel also about Jerusalem, it's not because he really cares. It's because he has to show that he is angry about us, that we took the other side. Now, when I'm talking interests, I'm always saying that, that we have one big ally. Israel have one big ally. The name is the United States of America. We have some other friends because we are a small country. We don't need enemies. We don't want enemies. And every time when the American interests is contradict with other interests, Israel don't have to hesitate even one second. Someone told me, yes, so why when the American interests is to sign a deal with Iran, you are saying no and you are going against the American interests. So I told him, don't make mistakes. Israel should support the American interest always with one exception. When the American interests are contradicting with Israel interests, we have to choose the Israeli interests and not the American interests. In Iran, it's a contradiction between Israeli interests and American interests. And in Israel, it's not just interest. It's a matter of our existence. Well, let, me, let me actually drill down a little bit on, on those interests. And this is going to take us to Syria and Lebanon. But so one of the reasons when you talk about Israeli interests, one of the reasons why the Israelis have been conflicted uh, about how to handle Putin is because Iran is in the process right now of a massive effort to smuggle what you call game-changing weapons. We can be honest, they're precision-guided munitions. They're trying to bring hundreds or thousands of them into Lebanon so that Hezbollah can use them against Israel in a future war. And it's for this reason, as you and I both know, and we can talk about foreign press reports, but we can also talk about what is, has been reported out of Israel, what's been admitted by the Israeli chiefs of staff. You can read it in our book. In, you can read it in, in our book. In your book that I helped you to, uh, that's, to do that's right. that's right. So, and what we're talking about is uh, you call the campaign between wars or the war between wars where Israel is striking in Syria almost, maybe it's a couple times a week. Maybe sometimes it's every night, depending on the pace of this campaign. But this is a serious campaign that Israel must continue to wage if it is going to stop Iran from getting these weapons into the hands of Hezbollah. And that is why Israel needs to continue to work with Putin. So the question, I guess, becomes now, so, okay, Israel's chosen the side of the United States. Putin appears to be at least okay with Israel continuing its operations. Maybe it's more tense. So then the question becomes, what does the future hold for this war between wars? At what point will, his, will Hezbollah have to pay a price for this ongoing effort 
to acquire new weapons that could really do some damage to Israel. The war between wars is not just some people thought it's a game or something in a small scale. It's not. It's a real war. Like if you go to Israel National Security Strategy, Ben-Gurion said, we are in a war and then in a wait for the next war. Not anymore. The national security changed. We are in a continuous war. The level of war is changing between a full-scale war to the war between wars, but it's, it's a war. A war with doctrine, with weapons, with technology, with things that you have to prepare for. It's a real war. It started a long time ago, not in Lebanon, not in Syria. It started with cyber attacks 2011. This was the beginning of the war between wars. We didn't even call it then like this. And now it became mostly in Lebanon, Syria, but also in Iran. The Iranian's leadership is sitting in Tehran. We call it octopus head sitting there and sending his arms. And then what we are doing, we are cutting the arm. Not anymore. If they will operate their proxies in Lebanon and Syria, the future and now, they will suffer in Tehran. Now, the three red lines, as you mentioned, it's a terror organization in Syria. It's transferring of weapons of destruction from Iran to Hezbollah via Syria. And, of course, the third one is Iranian establishments inside Syria that we are not going to allow. If one of all these three is breached, we are attacking. Now, there was an unwritten agreement that Israel is attacking in Syria and not attacking in Lebanon. But this agreement also said that the Hezbollah is not doing PGMs in Lebanon. It's changed. I think it is a mistake that we are allowing Hezbollah to move the balance to Lebanon sometimes underground, to build PGMs or to divert statistical missiles to PGMs in Lebanon. We have to stop it even, even if it is a chance that it will cause a clash between Israel and Hezbollah. Hezbollah don't want, and Iran don't want Israel to clash with Hezbollah now because it's not the Iranian interests now. We, we did a mistake before. And again, not politically, I don't want to say who did it, that they have now 200,000 missiles in Lebanon. It's a mistake. We cannot allow that they will have 1,000 or 2,000 or 5,000 precise guided munitions in Lebanon. It will change the pace and the picture of, of the next war. Those 200,000 rockets, and we hear numbers all the time, 130,000, 150,000. At, at a certain point, Never it mind. doesn't matter what the exact number is when you're looking at that many. Uh, and, and then, of course, there are the reports about the PGMs. The open source reports suggest that Hezbollah, you know, initially we heard that there were dozens. Then we heard maybe low hundreds. Now we're hearing that maybe there's even high hundreds no, in terms no, of the numbers. No, I, I think it's still low hundreds, but it's... It's still growing. Now, now, now it's running every it's day. Growing. Every yeah. day. Yeah. I don't know if the number is two, one, three, but multiple they're, they're, by, they're by, 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 by days. That's it. They're right. building. Right. So this is, of course, Iran's proxy strategy. This is what they're trying to do with Hezbollah. We know that they're providing uh, rockets to Hamas, and and we know that there was a war last year. There'll probably be another conflict in another year or two years or three years because this is how it goes. But the big thing, of course, and you knew we would finally get to this, is, of course, the big weapons that Iran has its eyes on. And, of course, I'm referring here to the nuclear program. Uh, the reports out of Washington and out of Vienna suggest that there has been a deadlock on the negotiations, that the Iranian demand that we delist the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the core of the terrorist operations of Iran, uh, that they're demanding that we remove them from our terrorist list. The United States offered many concessions, but it does not appear that Biden is willing to do this. So now there is a question, which is if this deal 
moves forward with the delisting of the IRGC, what is Israel's plan? If the deal doesn't happen, what is Israel's plan? How are we to understand what happens next? I think we're at a very sensitive moment in what has been a very long process, are we not? The most uh, fascinating fact to live in the Middle East and to be especially in Israel is that life is always interesting. We are always in a moment that is very, very, very interesting. And after we will go over this crisis, we'll come again to a very, very, very interesting point. And it's okay. You know, it gives a sense to, to life. It's not boring like living in Switzerland and what will be the weather next week. We have some other uh, issues to, to think about. Now, while the Iranians and their proxies are firing missiles on American soldiers, on American allies, while they are doing it, there is negotiations in Vienna. While Putin is attacking Ukraine and America is sending weapons, they are drinking wine in Vienna with Ulyanov and Mali. So the world is becoming crazy. Now that you can even think an agreement or the listing IRGC when they are attacking you, I don't think Biden can accept this. I'm not sure. He understands that this is the point he's going to lose even his party. Is not going to be able to delist. And the reason the why I should just, I'll just note why though, very briefly, politically, it's important to understand that there are American soldiers who've lost their lives and they've lost their limbs. They've been attacked by, by the IRGC in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. And that is, I think, a bridge too far, even for the Democrats who supported this. Deal. I just, yes, I just saw families that their children and their loved ones have been killed by IRGC. How come that you can even think about it? Now, we know that the envoy of Biden is trying to square the circle. Now, it brings us to what next? People say, okay, what is plan B? I say that it's not so simple. It's what is plan B when there is an agreement? What is plan B when there is an agreement with the listing of IRGC or without the listing of IRGC? And there is plan B if there is no agreement. Now, for Israel, plan B with no agreement, I think that it's easier for Israel that we can come back to the years of 2010-11 that we work together with the United States, with the CIA, sanctions, with sanctioned pressure. political cyber attack, with Europeans working together to stop Iran from becoming a threshold country or a nuclear country. Now, if you ask me what is the one single point that really makes me worry but makes me also angry, people are saying and thinking, so what? if Iran will become a threshold country. So what if Iran will become a country with a nuclear bomb? I'm coming from a family of Holocaust survivors. My father is the only survivor of his family. It's talks that remind me sometimes what happens when the Nazi Germany came to, to power. And people say, so what? It's a democracy. We cannot allow things like this to happen. If Iran will become a threshold country or a country that holds a nuclear bomb, the world won't look the same. And it is not Israel. It's the United States. But it's a Saudi it's, problem. It's an Emirati problem. No, it's, a, yes, it's an but, energy problem. But the Saudis, the Saudis and the Emirates and Israelis, they understand it. The United States don't understand it yet. And Europe especially don't understand it. This is missiles with nuclear that can come to any city in the United States in the world. Okay, I have two more questions for you. So one question is hard. The other one is probably easy. Probably. The hard question is, let's say there's no agreement or there is an agreement, and then Iran begins to do what we all expect Iran to do, which is to start moving toward a nuclear weapon anyway, right? Where they enrich uranium at the levels that they say they can, 
and they have enough material for a nuclear weapon, and maybe they have a test, whatever it is, Israel is at a point where it must make decisions. What do you think, based on your consultations, based on your understanding of Israel, what do you think happens at that moment or when you get close to that moment? I'm really glad that you started with the easy question. And, and I'm not joking. I think this is the easiest. It's not the easy answer, the easy question. Because we don't have a choice. Now, I see some people, and most of them are really serious people. They know what they're talking about, but they're doing mistakes. And they're going out and say, Israel don't have the capability to attack Iran alone or other things. And some of them are ex Officials in Israel did a really great job in their jobs. And they said, I don't think that the agreement is good, but the alternative is worse. No, the alternative is good if you, if you control the alternative and if there is no agreement. We cannot allow Iran to become nuclear. So we, Israel, know how to protect ourselves by ourselves alone. It's better that in this situation, in this area, in this problem, we won't be alone because it will be much tougher. And it's not going to be easy. Iran have missiles that can go to Israel. Our own front will, will, will suffer. But just, so, to be, just to be clear, though, it doesn't mean, and, it, because Israel decides to act, it doesn't mean that there's a full-blown exactly. war. Exactly. This is what I'm, uh, my, my lesson. When, when I say Israel will do whatever it needs, it's not that tomorrow evening you go, you look in the sky, and you see 200 uh, F-15 or F-16 or F-35s are running towards Iran. There are about 10 to 20 other areas that you can do in order to prevent Iran from becoming threshold. It this, started this with gets back right to it the started war with cyber. Wars. It started with uh, hey, this is other the war between wars. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. This yep. is all the parameters of the war between wars. There have been uh, senior Iranian leaders that have been taken off the battlefield in in Syria. We know that there was an airfield full of drones that was destroyed in Western Iran not too long ago as well. I don't know who did it. I, I'm not asking you who did, but all I'm saying is that these are all part of a pattern that I think, and, and I think maybe what we can just agree on is that, you know, look, it's e very easy to say either there will be war or no war. I think what Israel appears to be doing is operating somewhere in between, and that's what I would think we would see more of almost regardless of what happened. You know, some people saying, and again, some people that don't understand what is the meaning of a nuclear program. Look, if you do something, you will probably take a plan only two, three years back. So I tell them, no, it's good or bad? No, for two, three years back. So I told them, look, if a country is starting from zero, how much time it takes there to become nuclear? It's four, five years. So if I'm taking Iran back, Three years, it's a big success. Sometimes the psychology is that if you are in a place that was attacked, you're not going back there. But also ask yourself, if you were told you could live two more years, if you were sick and you gave yourself two more years of healthy living, would you take it? Of course you would, right? So if something is threatening you and you can actually forestall that threat for two years, you'd think you would do it. And some people in Israel, very smart people are doing the mistake. They're saying, look, two years remain sick, but I'm working on medicine that I need all the money to build this medicine, and in three years, I will give you this medicine, and you will become totally healthy. So I'm telling him, look, the doctor told me that I have only 18 months to live. So I don't want you to work on a medicine that will come in three years. I will be dead. If we need to confront Iran, let's do it before they have the a bomb or becoming a threshold country, not later. 
we are now already seven years after the agreement and people don't understand. Some people don't learn from what happened in the last eight years. Things that happened, we cannot go back. We cannot reverse. We cannot come back to the 2015 situation because we gave Iran to enrich, to do R&D, to do a lot of other things. Okay. Uh, and, and what about the easy question? We're, here comes the easy question. We're nearing the end of our, of our time together. This has been a terrific conversation. I want to ask if you have maybe a good news story coming out of Israel. There's a lot of, we talked about a lot of things today, stressful issues relating to conflict and war and enemies. Uh, of course, we have good news coming out of the Gulf in many places, the normalization between Israel and uh, and some of her Arab neighbors. But are there things, is there one thing that you think about now that when you think about what's happening inside Israel, it's a good news story for our listeners? Oh, it's very easy. Really easy. Look, we have a lot of new developments in all fields to prove the life of Israelis and the world. We are still a startup nation. 25% of investment in startup of cyber security defense are in Israel. It's about three to 400 times relative to our size. And when you ask Israelis, this is amazing. There is a survey. Is there any other country that you want to live in the world? 90 plus percent say, I want to live in Israel. Do you like your, your, your life? And there are a lot of parameters. Israel became number five or six in the world. I really enjoy and I will never uh, replace Israel in any other place in the world. So this is a good story from Israel. The Israelis want to stay in Israel because this is our land. This is our promised land. You know, I'm religious. But it's not because of religious. It's because it's the best place in the world to be. Well, we're happy that you're here. We uh, we will enjoy our time with you while you're here in the United States. And uh, we wish you safe travels back to Israel. And we know we'll have you again uh, back here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.